Walks like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. And my guest today is Michael Hankson, a former high-tech executive, now an author and international public speaker. November is Disability Awareness Month at WNF with some programming across most shows reflecting that theme. My first thought was this provides another ideal opportunity to speak with Michael Hankson, who, blind since birth, grew up in a family that didn't believe his disability should prevent him from doing, well, just about anything, really. As you'll hear. As a kid, he learned how to ride a bike. As a college student, he famously drove a car, though that was briefly, and earned a master's degree in physics. Hansen worked for high-tech companies, mostly in management, and was employed in that capacity in Tower One of the World Trade Center on 9-11, when his then-guide dog, Roselle, led him to safety from the 78th floor. That and more was chronicled in Hingson's best-selling book, Thunder Dog. He's written a second book, Running with Roselle, a story for our youth, and has recently created a new coaching program, Blinded by Fear, which has relevance for the pandemic, among other uses. We'll hear about that program and a number of other topics when I speak with Michael Hinkson in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Later in today's show, I'll speak with Claudia Baeza, the owner of Pineapple Yoga and Cycle Studio in Sarasota, which on many Sundays, including this one, November 29th, hosts Yappy Yoga Sundays with Dharma which if you're thinking involves doing a yoga class alongside your dog, you're reading the message loud and clear. Spoiler alert, the titular Dharma is an English bulldog. The class is actually taught by a human, Beza herself. More on Yappy Yoga later in today's program. Right now, though, let's talk with Michael with the reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Michael Hinkson back on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thanks for joining us again on Talking Animals. Glad to be here all the way from cold California. It's 39 outside. Wow, in San Francisco or thereabouts? Or? No, I'm down in uh, Southern California now, so about 55 miles from where I grew up. Wow, okay, well that's even uh, in some ways uh, maybe more surprising. So, uh, okay, well, well, sounds like, uh, you yeah, know... It was to me, but we did. Yeah, okay. Well, a chilly morning, but hopefully a good time for uh, chatting about one thing or another. And in fact, it's been the better part of a decade since we last spoke on the show. So I do uh, figure we have some catching up to do. In that last conversation, one key element was you had just at that point published the book, Thunderdog, The True Story of a Blind Man, His Guide Dog, and the Triumph of Trust at Ground Zero, which went on to become a major bestseller. And looking back, when did that book kick into high gear? Was there a particular moment you recall where things just sort of accelerated, momentum gathered, et cetera, or was it just a steady, gradual build that made it uh, become a bestseller? Actually, the the thing that happened with Thunderdog is that uh, I was contacted by Susie Flory, who wanted to write her own book, but after hearing my story said, you really ought to write your own book, and she did still publish her book, Dog Tales, which 
um, has 17 different dog stories, including Roselle's. And um, that that book um, is is available out there still as well, I believe. But Susie said, you ought to write your own, and I'd like to help. And I've been working on it for quite a while in, in various ways. So I had, like, literally over a megabyte worth of notes in Microsoft Word. Wow. So we started talking, and she introduced me to her agent, Chip McGregor, who's one of the top literary agents in the country. And Chip said, I don't want a 9-11 book. And I said, good, I don't want a 9-11 book either. Um, I think that this has to be a book that teaches people about blindness. It teaches people about what guide dogs are and what they're not. And it hopefully will help people move on from September 11th, which is also the set of reasons that got me into the speaking business. So Susie and I worked on the book. Chip sold it to Thomas Nelson Publishing, which is now part of HarperCollins. And um, um, in July of 2011, we knew Amazon was ordering the book, and it got favorable reviews in Kirkus, which is the journal that publishes information for publishers about upcoming books, and they, they were very kind and very nice. So on August 2nd, the book was actually officially released, August 2nd, 2011. <clears throat> then nine days later on the 11th, I was at home in the early afternoon, and we got a call from the folks at Thomas Nelson who I'd been working with, and they said, well, we've got to talk to you about one thing. Can you sit down? Because we, we really need to be serious here. And I said, well, my wife's sitting down. Does that count? And Karen happens to be a lady in a wheelchair. And they said, well, that's good, but we need you to sit down, too. So I sat down, and I said, okay, sitting down. And the next thing out of their mouth was, on its first week out, Thunderdog is on the New York Times bestseller list. So wow. it happened right away. Yeah. And it's actually also been a number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. So we've been excited about that. It continues to sell. And sure. we hope people will buy it during the, the pandemic. It's available wherever books are sold and, you know, help a poor starving author. It's what I love to say anyway. For sure. Well, and again, it's really what they often call a, a sort of an evergreen story in that, yeah, it's specific to 9-11, but as you touched on already, it's much broader than that in terms of the things that you cover and address in the book, although it's a pretty compelling story about what did happen with you and Roselle on 9-11. So I sort of touched on it in passing, but uh, I don't know if you want to say anything about that or we can move on to other other things. Oh, up to you. Um, we're, you know, we're excited, and, and the, the book was published, and Roselle passed away in June of 2011. So the next day I wrote, an, um, well, a tribute to, to her, a eulogy to her. And uh, when the third printing of Thunderdog came out, which happened by, like, August or early September, because the whole printing process has changed, and they don't print millions of copies, but they print more based on what the demand is perceived to be but they added that into the book so um we're we're pleased about that right and also speaking of roselle and and uh, elements of books there's also a book that's uh, more specifically in some ways at least by title uh, devoted to roselle running with roselle a story for our youth you want to describe that a little bit and running running with roselle was really intended to be more of a story of me growing up and learning to to live as a as a blind child and as a blind youth and growing into adulthood <clears throat> at the same time also a story about roselle and roselle growing up being trained by the stearns and others and so on and then how we met so there is some of september 11th in it but not nearly as much and running with roselle was published in late 2013 written with jeanette hanscom um it was intended for youth but more adult buy it than youth. So uh, 
it's it is also available you can get it wherever books are sold it's also available on amazon we self-published it and uh, and it is out there as well so again it's called running with roselle right another thing that could help a starving uh, author uh pick up a couple, absolutely pick up a lunch or whatever so uh, yeah i got gotcha. you right so one of the things that about that, well, both books really, but chiefly Thunderdog, is even though that it wasn't only about the 9-11 experience, uh, still, I would guess that would be a, proved to be sort of a difficult story to follow. Like, hey, I've been blind since birth, was working in the towers on 9-11, and my gu- guide dog led me to safety from the 78th floor. I don't imagine there are too many people who said, true, that's a pretty dramatic story, but I've got one that can top it. Seems unlikely. I, I haven't heard of I haven't heard people say that. I've heard of a few people who had some pre, some pretty good stories. Sure. Of course, it's also important to recognize that Roselle did not lead me down the stairs, which is what everyone says. The purpose of a guide dog is to make sure that we walk safely. That is to say, I need to give her commands and I need to know where to go and how to get there. The action is mine to initiate. Roselle's job, whenever we're walking, or now current guide dog number eight, Alamo, who's a black lab laying over here near me, four and a half, and Alamo thinks he's a lap dog. But the job of a guide dog is to make sure that we walk safely. Yeah. So, for example, when I am at a curb, the dog will stop. I will discover that I'm at the curb, and I will tell the dog to go forward out into the street and cross the street. Let's say we're starting to cross the street, and suddenly the dog jerks back. In that case, the dog is probably exhibiting something that we call intelligent disobedience, which is, yeah, you gave me this command, but there's this car coming, and I'm going to get out of the way and pull you out of the way. And my job is to follow the dog. But in general, it's my responsibility as the team leader to give the dog commands and expect the dog to obey the commands. And if the dog isn't obeying a command, then typically speaking, there's a reason for that. What I love to say to people is now there is that point zero 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 one percent chance that actually the dog saw a duck and wanted to go visit the duck. And if that turns out to be the case, we're going to have a team meeting and one of the team members is going to have to explain themselves. Yeah. But but the reality is that it's a it's a two creature job um, in terms of us walking, and the dog is not the brains of that organization. The dog's job is specific, and my job is specific, and the two of us have to work together to get things done. And people always think, "Oh, it's amazing how that dog knows where that man wants to go." The dog doesn't know, and I don't want the dog to know. I don't want my dog ever to get into the habit of going one way because I don't want the dog to expect me to go where it thinks I want to go and suddenly I want to go a different way. So a perfect example is in the World Trade Center. If I always took exactly the same way to go from my office to somewhere else in the building, the dog's going to want to go that way. And if I want to go suddenly a different way to go to a different office, there'll be a little bit of a tussle about that because the dog has gotten into the habit of going one way. Mm. <clears throat> so um, we worked really really hard in the World Trade Center to make sure that even if it was just going out my door, office door, and going around a whole square just to get back to something that was a lot closer, I will sometimes go a different way so the dog doesn't get into a particular habit. That's really important, I think. Yeah. Um, Dogs can learn routes, and dogs can learn to go specific places, and some people like that. I choose not to because I don't want my dog to be uh, in, in a specific habitual mode. That also keeps me alert to know where to go and how to get there, which is what we're supposed to do. Sure. So you altered those routes at the World Trade Center 
obviously long before any, anything bad happened, partly because you didn't, as you just explained, you didn't want Roselle to get into a certain pattern like, hey, this is how we go to the other guy's office or how we go down to the lobby or the cafeteria or wherever it might be. And partly, I guess, just because there was probably some extra complications to working in a place, especially as high up as I guess you were uh, in the tower. So further to keep Roselle from settling into any kind of expected routine, I guess that was a the idea of mixing it up. Yeah, um, exactly. And and there aren't very many choices when you're up in the tower in our office. You either go left out the door of the office or right out the door. Um, So it isn't like there are too many choices, but even having two ways to go to get to elevators was better than always going one particular way. And, And why was that really important? Well, in my mind, it was important because if there were an emergency and one way was block, we'd have to go the other way. And I don't want the dog to be making that decision. I want the dog to be guiding and always alert for my commands. And then the dog can go, well, we can do that or no, we can't do that. So that was part of the whole issue. I learned what to do in the case of an emergency at the World Trade Center and used that information on September 11th. Um, I learned as much as I could about the whole complex. And in fact, most every day when I went into the towers, I said to myself, have I learned all there is to know today in case there's ever an emergency? And what I didn't understand and didn't realize was that, in fact, what I was doing was creating a mindset because it got to the point where I was very confident that I had learned all that I could learn. And if if I ever heard something that gave me a hint, maybe there was something else to know, I'd go find it out. Mm. But I got to the point where I recognized, I think I know whatever there is to know that I could possibly use if there's an emergency. So if something happens, then my mind needs to kick in and we go from there. Hence, um, why I wasn't afraid when we were going downstairs. And make no mistake about it, it wasn't that I wasn't afraid at all. It was that I was controlling my fear. Yeah. And for the past 19 years, while I've been traveling and speaking to people around the world and talking about teamwork and trust and leadership and working with guide dogs and telling the World Trade Center story, um, what I recognized over this summer during the pandemic is I've never taught people how to do what I did. That is to say, I've never taught people anything really about controlling fear. Oh, people come up and they say, oh, you're very inspirational and all that. But I realized this summer during the pandemic when speaking has dropped off and still available to speak virtually as well. So if anyone needs a speaker, please reach out and you can go to www.michaelhingson.com and I'm sure Duncan's going to put that up. But but the, the, the bottom line is for me, I realized I didn't teach people that. And hence, as you mentioned at the top of the hour, the new coaching program entitled Blinded by Fear, because people are becoming afraid due to the pandemic. Um, People have been afraid because of other major unexpected life changes, such as September 11th, and they get to the point of being so afraid they can't make decisions. They've They've sort of lost that ability. They're, they're too afraid to do anything. People uh, still exist who won't fly because of what happened on September 11th. Yeah. So we, we've started this, and the program is about to, to be released. Um, I'm hoping we'll actually have it live today, and people can go to blindedbyfear.net. And um, if, if um, it should be up later today, 
Okay. That's the, well, we'll keep uh, an eye on it. And by the yeah. time we post the uh, the archive of today's show, we'll be able to post sounds like that link as well. So. Be able to start to learn some of those techniques. Yeah. Well, we'll get. Uh, I'd like to delve into a bit more of that in a moment. But a couple things. One is the website. Just if you are looking for the current website for Michael Hinkson, it's Michael Hinkson H I N G S O N dot com. And also there was something else I was going to say, but either way, I wanted to incorporate a caller that's been holding for. A few minutes into the conversation, so let's get them involved. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Michael Hankson. Hello. Hi. And hey, Mike, welcome to Tampa, even if it is virtual. <laughs> well, even if it I, is, Marion, how are you? I am well. How are you? I just want to commend WMNF uh, and congratulate Mike uh, on all of his success. <laughs> it's really refreshing to hear someone who is a guide dog user talk about guide dog use in a very realistic way rather than sensationalized it like many of the guide dog training programs like to do. Uh, it, it doesn't help us as blind people uh, when 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 our dogs are the focus of attention and they're sensationalized as to being the the, the, the be-all and end-all in our mobility. So it's very refreshing to have someone like Mike Hinkson representing the realistic use of a guide dog. I'm a, I'm a blind guide dog user from Freedom Guide Dogs up in upstate New York, and uh, uh, Mike and I served together for 12 years as uh, uh, president and vice president of the National Association of Guide Dog Users. So, yeah. Thank you very much, Mike, for your work. We thank, appreciate it. Thank you so much for your call. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. So, uh, yeah, I now remember what, what the other thing I was going to say that I couldn't quite recall a second ago, which is that uh, that I and others have obviously been mis- giving misplaced credit to Roselle for, because uh, I think I, I, in fact, used that phrase about guiding you down the uh, the towers on, on 9-11. And so duly noted that you guided Roselle down and working together, you guys got down safely. So important distinction. It's a team effort. I mean, she yeah. guided, but it is a team effort. Yeah. And there were places on the stairs where it was so crowded that, in fact, we couldn't use the harness and she just had to walk at heel behind me and I held on to um, the stair rail. Um, and, you know, we did what we needed to do to get out. But I also know two other things. One, because I kept encouraging Roselle and telling her she's doing a good job. Good girl, Roselle. She guided well because she knew that I was feeling comfortable, which is part of the team's support. And people followed us. I've heard from people later that people followed us because of the fact that they saw us going down the stairs and they saw Roselle's tail up and she was happy and guiding and and I was communicating with her. So they followed us down the stairs. The other thing which isn't really as guide dog related is we were with a colleague, David Frank, and David um, was in for the day because we were doing sales seminars. He had come in from our corporate office. Um, And so David at about the 50th floor kind of panicked a little bit and we worked that out. But then he walked a floor below us on the stairs and started shouting up to me everything he saw, like, you know, hey, Mike, I'm on the 47th floor when I was on 48. All's clear. And I bring that up because I, I feel it appropriate and necessary to mention, even though it isn't guide dog related, what David did, I think, is one of the best things that I saw happen that day, because as he shouted to me um, things like, hey, I'm at the 44th floor. This is where the Port Authority cafeteria is going on down the stairs, not stopping. He was also being heard by thousands of people mm, on the stairs. Yeah. He gave them something to focus on wow. and had to have, by definition, kept people from panicking on the stairs. 
um, which I think is is really cool um, and and something that doesn't get talked about. But David did that all the way down the stairs. Yeah. Did I need David to do that? It wasn't necessary, but it helped David. But it helped so many people because whether you were above him or below him, you knew there was someone on the stairs who was okay, and that helped too. Yeah. Uh, what a great instinct that he had to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Michael Hinkson, blind since birth. He's a former high-tech executive, now an author and speaker. Uh, the pandemic has inspired him to create a new coaching program called Blinded by Fear. He's touched on it briefly. We'll probably hear more about it later in the program. If you'd like to ask Michael a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663. Email dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. So, Michael... You know, this is, uh, I think, your third time that we've chatted on Talking Animals, I guess about every eight or nine years or thereabouts. And in getting the word out about this interview, I've mentioned a handful of biographical details, none of which are new to me, of course, at this point, given that we have talked a couple times before. But I got to thinking about some of those details in a new way. For example, the Masters in Physics. Now, my noggin isn't too sharp when it comes to spatial relations or, or physics-related kinds of thinking. I'm much more of a verbal kind of minded guy. But with your being blind since birth, and, and this may or may be too personal, or if you don't want to address it, I totally understand. But I'm extremely curious and thinking about this more recently again, how you saw, quote unquote, things as you were studying physics and becoming skillful enough to earn a master's degree in that discipline. So a couple of points. Why is it different for a blind person than a sighted person? Um, you you have to start by not assuming that eyesight is the only game in town. Yeah. That is to say there is more than one way to look at, deal with, or solve a problem. <clears throat> so um, I could ask you the same question. How do you visualize things? Um, and, and your answer in part is going to be that you see them and then you've got something in your mind. Well, I don't need to see them with eyesight to learn that same information. I will use other techniques and I will use other information. There are parts of science that have not been necessarily available uh, to me when I was in school. I wasn't able to, in college, deal with performing a lot of science experiments because the information that came out of scientific equipment on the campus was not available in a non-visual way. That's changed now. Mm. I, I actually do some consulting with a company called Independence Science. That's Independence, C-E-N-C-E -E at the end, science.com. They make a product called a Talking Lab Quest, and literally it's a box that you can connect up to, uh, well, a number of probes into there are 80 different probes that will measure all the different kinds of things that one might need in the sciences, whether it be the pH of a solution, whether it be magnetic field strength, force, um, and, or, or anything. And the box will actually verbalize that information. And I can even output it to um, an Excel spreadsheet or onto a printer and, and so on. And the device is called Talking Lab Quest. Mm. Uh, so now blind people can do the experiments. Before, we couldn't do the experiments. We could intellectually understand them, but we didn't get to participate. Now we can. But the, but the fact is, it, eyesight's not the only way to solve a problem. Um, and unfortunately, the, the biggest problem that I as a blind person has is that most people haven't tried blindness. 
And right. you can't just try blindness by putting a blindfold on and go dining in the dark. You know, sure. Some organizations that do that. And that's the worst thing that could be done for blind people, this, yeah. this dining in the dark, because you have a problem eating. Oh, my God, is that what blind people face? No. Um, yeah. We learn how to dine um, not using eyesight. And, and the fact of the matter is you learn to dine using eyesight. It doesn't mean that one way is better than the other. Right. And so the, the fact is there are lots of different techniques techniques that I use to do the same things that you do. I use a computer that, that talks or out, outputs information on a non-permanent Braille display, and I can use it just the same way that you can. Yeah. But, but the fact is that there, there is a lot of technology that is out there that allows me to get access to information. The big problem is, though, people still have the attitudes they do about blindness, and so we still face an unemployment rate among employable blind people of over 65%, which is the biggest thing that the National Federation of the Blind is trying to fight and address because it's all attitude. Yeah. Not that we can't do the job, it's people think we can't do the job. I was going to bring that up later because that was one thing we did discuss almost a decade ago that really stayed with me and it kind of haunted me. And it sounds like it's not great inroads since that time. Well, we, it, it's it's slowly getting better, but it's 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 step by step. I mean, we had to take a case to the Supreme Court just to get blind students who wanted to be lawyers to be able to take the bar exam in an accessible way. Even the Bar Association wasn't providing information in an accessible form. Um, a lot of the, the educational institutions are doing great disservices to blind children because they won't teach them Braille. And blind doesn't mean you have no eyesight. The definition of blindness that I use actually was developed by the National Federation of the Blind, and the definition is that if your eyesight is diminished to the point where you have to use alternatives to full eyesight in order to function, then you are blind or ought to learn to use blindness techniques. Even if you still have eyesight, you can then use what you have of both worlds. But you should start to learn then when your eyesight still exists some, because if you wait till you lose it all, then you're dealing with trauma and a bunch of other things rather than recognizing, I'm okay if I'm blind. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being blind. No, absolutely. And, and I understand about the eyesight is not the only game in town. I guess the reason I, I was interested is because uh, maybe because it was physics versus you being, let's say, a novelist or whatever. I guess I just in terms of your training and becoming, you know, getting a master's sure. degree, whatever, it just seemed a little bit more intriguing about. But, you, a, lot, but a lot of physics is a lot of physics is not visual anyway. I mean, my academic advisor, when you know, when you in the UC Irvine, my academic advisor was Fred Rhinus, who was the dean of physical sciences, who was also the discoverer of the subatomic particle, atomic particle, the neutrino. Well, that particle is way too small to see, right? But um, he had technology and developed what he needed in order to be able to discover it, and he theorized that it was there and then proved that it was. It, a lot of it isn't necessarily visual. But there are parts of it that have been unavailable to me because they have been visual and, and even scientists tend to be somewhat close-minded. There was a letter put in my academic file by one of the professors in the School of Physics um, at Eustirvine that said that no blind person could ever absorb the material necessary to get an advanced degree in physics. Mm. 
Now, I always thought that scientists were supposed to be open-minded, but the reality is it, it doesn't happen yeah. because we grow up, or most of us in society grow up thinking that eyesight is the only game in town, and it's not. Um, when I speak to children, I always ask, What's the, what are the things that you think a blind person can't do? And, of course, the number one answer is drive a car. Really? Go visit www.blinddriverchallenge.org. Blinddriverchallenge.org has a video of a gentleman named Mark Riccobono, who is now the president of the National Federation of the Blind, of over 50,000 people. Mark climbing into a Ford Escape and then driving around the Daytona Speedway right before the Rolex 24 race in January of 2011. And he did that because technology was created and adapted or put onto the Ford Escape that transmitted to Mark information so that he literally could drive that car just like you would. It wasn't an autonomous vehicle. It wasn't that he didn't have control. He was in full control and needed to be steering around obstacles in the Daytona track, um, having boxes thrown at him from a van in front of him, and he had to avoid them, passing the van, doing other things. He drove that car because of a few hundred dollars in technology that was added to the vehicle that gave him the information to drive it. Now, that technology isn't ready for prime time, but to say a blind person cannot drive a car is inaccurate today. Well, I've loved and often mentioned uh, in passing with, with important clarification that, if I'm not mistaken at least, there was a brief time in your college years where you drove a car, which uh, was probably long before there was even that kind of technology. Yeah, my roommate um, was was in the uh, in the in the passenger seat and he he gave me directions and we we actually my favorite night we um, we had a parade we had most of the Irvine Police Department following us one of they all knew me and one of them saw us and called the chief and other people and they were all following us around the campus it was fun that's great that's college hijinks at its finest I think yeah so uh, mm. so let's talk a little bit about Alamo just to make sure we. We cover some other guide dog related things before we start to get near the end of our time. So, first of all, I wasn't clear, and I, uh, you might have said this at some point in an email, but is Alamo male or female? Alamo's a male. Okay, cool. Um, my first three guide dogs were male golden retrievers. The next four were female yellow labs. And now we have a male black lab. Yeah. And is it harder, given that many dogs, is it harder when it's time to be paired with a new dog or easier, actually? You know, certainly Roselle was the hardest one to say goodbye to. I'm sure. Um, when she passed, when she retired, it was easy because she had contracted a condition known as immune-mediated thrombocytopenia. If you want to know how to spell that, get Thunderdog. Yeah. But uh, she contracted that in 2004. Um, but worked for three more years, and then her kidney values started to change, so we retired her. Now, what you need to understand is that while I talked about guide dogs and what they do and what the the handler does and how we're a team, the work is really stressful. The dogs take it very seriously, and they will really work till they drop. They they love to do what they do, and they love the relationship, and they especially love to know what the rules are, which is why we have good relationships. Well, um, so when Roselle passed, it was, of course, tough. But I am, um, after some period of time when dogs are getting older, I start to look and assess daily. Well, I do it all the time, but especially later daily. How is the dog doing? Is the dog slowing down? Does the dog not see as well at night? <clears throat> so I was using Africa in 2017 
when I decided that Africa was starting to slow down enough that maybe it was time to explore retiring her mm. and going on from there. So I contacted Guide Dogs for the Blind, where I've gotten all of my dogs here in California. And we had a conversation about it and decided it was probably time to start to work to retire Africa. So what I started to do was to use her a little bit less. I also use a white cane. Um, I believe that anyone who uses a guide dog needs to be a good cane user as well, and you should be able to do that because, remember what I said earlier, which is that you need to be aware of your surroundings and you give the commands. So I should be able to use a cane to get that information. So <clears throat> working with Africa, we would work a little bit less and I'd leave her home. And she didn't seem to mind it a whole lot. Mm. Along the way in mid or well, late 2017, we scheduled a time. Um, they finally had an opening and they thought they had a dog that would work. So on February 9th, 2018, Africa's puppy raisers came to visit us and we had offered them the opportunity to keep her and take her because we already had another dog. In fact, it was Africa's mother, Fantasia, who was Karen's dog and had been a breeder originally for guide dogs for the blind when we lived in the Bay Area. And then when she wasn't breeding anymore, we kept her. So we knew that if we kept Africa and another guide dog came along, having three dogs around the house, and as I traveled, Karen needing to take care of two dogs would be a little bit of a challenge. Yeah. So... Africa's puppy raisers came and they took her and she walked out the door without a backward glance. Thank you very much. Um, we still see her every so often. But then two days later, I was up at Guide Dogs for the Blind and got Alamo. Um, it's it's always different. Uh, yeah. it, it is only as hard as you make it, however, to answer that question. Sure. Um, Are there signs that it's going to be a good fit or that it maybe won't be a good fit? Um, depends on, you know, not every dog and every person gets along together. Um, when you start to work in, in different kinds of areas, like we would be, when I had my sixth dog named Merrill, who was the dog after Roselle, Merrill very quickly got fearful of being in, in big areas and big cities and, and, and doing a lot of guiding and actually retired after 18 months and hmm. went off to live with, I think, a, a family in Nevada for a while. I don't remember whether it was, I think, I don't remember whether it was her puppy raisers. I don't think it was. Okay. But um, usually the fits are good. Um, and also there are times that you just have to work at it a little bit because one side or the other is uncomfortable and you got to work together. Yeah. My third dog, Klondike, um, even at Guide Dogs, when we were starting to work together, Klondike got very fearful of getting off of the bus and walking around in San Francisco, but he hadn't exhibited that with the trainers. And so they said, keep working with him. And we actually worked through it. Then we discovered that Klondike was an epileptic. Um, and, and it was because his thyroid level was very low, which tends in animals and dogs, especially to be something that makes them more susceptible to seizures. Mm. Once we raised his thyroid level back up, um, he was great and never exhibited fear again. So there, there are always things that you have to look at. You have to analyze and really decide what's good and what's not good. But the most important thing is that we as users can't panic. Yeah. We need to be in charge, and we need to encourage the dog, and either it's something that can be worked through, or like with Meryl, there was just no getting her to focus. She was just very fearful, and trainers came and observed her, and they said, yeah, this isn't getting any better, hmm. so we agreed that she should retire. Interesting. 
Yeah, so because I've talked to you and a number of other people over the years about guide dogs and just the extensive training and how at one point or another some just kind of uh, aren't quite cut out clearly and so they may veer off to some other kind of job or go back to their puppy raises as you mentioned. But I, right. I guess I wasn't as familiar with how often once they're placed with someone that it still could could go the way it went with Merrill, but I guess it makes sense now that you now that you explain it. Yeah. Well, when you start working with a new dog, you're building a team, and I think it takes a good year to develop that trust. Everyone says dogs love unconditionally, and I think that's probably true, but they don't trust unconditionally. The difference between dogs and people is, however, that dogs are open to trust, and we have just become so closed about trusting that we figure everyone has a hidden agenda, and and what we don't do then is convey that we're open to the concept of trust. We need to get back to some of that, and you know our our political leaders haven't helped with that, but our work environments haven't helped with that. So many things haven't helped, but the the bottom line is. We at least ought to be open to trusting others like dogs are. So Alamo, for example, my latest, was very open to trust. But it was still a process for us to get used to each other sure. and for him to decide that I knew what I was doing and for me to decide that he knew what he was doing and for us to become a seamless team together. Yeah, you're really so forging a relationship. Part, the trust part. Yeah, sounds like you're really, whatever training Alamo brought and your obviously years of experience with dogs and the whole situation, still you are building and forging a relationship that's going to take some time and uh, every relationship like that probably is at least somewhat different. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Michael, I think... It works. We, it works, and most of the time it does. Yeah. So I think, unfortunately, we've just about reached the end of our time, but I want to review a couple of things. The book that we talked about initially at the first part of the show is Thunderdog, The True Story of a Blind Man, His Guide Dog, and the Triumph of Trust at Ground Zero. And then there's Running with Roselle, a story for our youth, both of which are available wherever you get your dogs. And Michael's website is Michael... Or your books. Okay, yeah, sorry, every book, sorry. <laughs> now i got dogs on my mind <laughs> somehow. Uh, and his website is Michael Hingson, H-I-N-G-S-O-N dot com. And then it sounds like as soon as maybe later today, the website devoted Blinded to by Blinded by Feet. Fe- yeah, yeah, so that will have a, a new kind of coaching program that we touched on but didn't get in as, quite as much detail as I had hoped to. But maybe we'll do that in the next conversation that we have on Talking M. So, Michael, thanks uh, so much well, for joining us again on Talking M. You can visit any time and I'll wake up for you. Okay, well, no, I appreciate that. I know it's a early uh, early hour out there, but I appreciate it, and uh, it was great speaking with you once again. Thank you so much. Well, it was my pleasure and honor, and looking forward to doing it in the future. Great. Thanks again. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Claudia Baeza, who owns Pineapple Yoga and Cycle Studio in Sarasota, which, among its many classes, offers Yappy Yoga Sundays with Dharma, including this very Sunday, November 29th. Surely we'll hear about how Yappy Yoga works and about some of the canine and human fun that can happen after the yoga class. Right now, though, we're going to step into the comedy corner with a uh, piece highly relevant to our conversation with Michael Hingson, with a comic making his comedy corner debut. This is Michael Feeney with part of a piece called Service Dogs Are a Miracle in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. If you can make it here, uh, you can make it anywhere. And that was written uh, for one group of people only, and that is uh, the blind. Because... I mean, if you're blind and you can navigate that eight-mile obstacle course... 
that's mostly stairs. Like, you can, congratulations, you're a superhero. Like, I don't know how. I watched a blind guy make a subway transfer. Do you have any idea how impressive that was? There was already another train there. He just popped up and walked across the platform with more confidence than I've ever had in anything in my life. I was like, how did he know that was there? Unless he's using his other senses where he's like, oh, that smells like piss. That's the cue. Like, how are you? Yeah, and he didn't have a dog either, which I also don't understand how those work. Um, it's been explained to me, but I'm too dumb to get it, I think. They're like, here's how the dogs work. Uh, they learn very specific routes over months, sometimes years. And I'm like, okay, cool, I get that. But then how do I, as the blind guy, tell the dog which route I want to go on? Anybody? I mean, I don't know. I, you can't just be like, bank, and then he just goes to the bank. Like, what? He's, he's a dog. Like, how would he, you know what I mean? So, I was talking about this in a comedy club. This actually, in this comedy club, and I'm not lying, there was a blind guy with a service dog in the crowd. He was in the very back of the room. Ironically, I didn't see him, but he was back there. <laughs> And he said, he was like, hey man, like I don't appreciate you uh, talking about service animals because my service dog cost me $60,000, right? I, that's, I was like, I don't know the going rate of a service dog, but like, that's a lot of goddamn money for a GPS. Like, what are you, what are you doing? Get an iPhone, man, like that's crazy. If you say bank to Siri, she will take you to the bank. She knows all the banks. Like, why wouldn't you, you know? For $60,000, I will be your seeing eye dog. I mean, that is... All right, that was Mike Feeney in today's Comedy Corner. But a portion of a piece called Service Dogs Are a Miracle, taken from his album Rage Against the Routine. Now it's time to speak with Claudia Beesa, who owns Pineapple Yoga and Cycle Studio in Sarasota. Chiefly, we're going to hear about Yappy Yoga Sundays with Dharma. Yes, a yoga class you can take with your dog. And the Dharma, in this case, is a dog, an English bulldog. Let's hear more. Here's Claudia Beesa on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. So before launching Pineapple Yoga, you seem to be on a, if I have this right, at least a pretty serious academic and professional path. Tell me about the detour into opening a yoga studio. Well, before um, opening the yoga studio, I was a college adjunct professor at Boston University. And then later on, I was a practicing lawyer in Massachusetts. And I decided that my real calling in life was um, to do yoga and to help people and um, to bring people together for healing. Um, so when we moved here about, um, it's going to be five and a half years ago, I decided um, that sooner or later, I would open up a yoga studio in Florida. So that's where um, my pineapple yoga and cycling studio evolved from. Gotcha. So when did you start offering Yappy Yoga Sundays with Dharma? What prompted it? Um, well, we have a nonprofit called the Dharma Footprint Project, which happened before Dharma. And um, that nonprofit does yoga on a donation basis for multiple um, specialties like um, a uh, Parkinson's disease, uh, recovery yoga, yoga for traumatic brain injury, yoga for anxiety, mm. um, and yoga for veterans, and other programs that were, were in development. So when, Dharma, when we got Dharma, um, 
when I thought about her name, I thought, well, it has to be Dharma because I had already created Dharma's footprint. Sure. And it almost was like it just had to be. So um, her um, her name was a natural outcome of the nonprofit. Right. Um, and so that's where Dharma Dharma's name came from. Yeah. And when did you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to, we're going to, we got Dharma, we got the name, and now let's launch a Yappy Yoga Sundays with Dharma. When did that happen? And Well, that happened shortly after we were allowed to reopen the studio this summer. Okay. And we have a very large gated outdoor um, yoga and cycling studio in downtown Sarasota. We're the only outdoor studio in in the area. And people were spending a lot of time at home with their dogs. And so, and I was bringing my dog into the studio. And so Dharma will greet everyone when they arrive. And so my clients started asking for, well, oh gosh, I wish I could do yoga with my dog. And I thought, well, of course you can, because we will do it here. So we started um, Yappy Yoga Sundays and it's once a month on the last Sunday of the month. And okay. everyone brings their friendly dog um, to play and to do yoga. And we just have a really joyous time. And these animals just bring everybody so much joy. And we spend time together in a socially distanced and responsible way. And we're outdoors. So it was the best of all worlds. We were just, just really happy to be together and with our dogs. Yeah, I'm glad you noted the, because uh, I was going to ask about this, because the fact is it is outdoors. So in terms of people wondering, oh, like, geez, how are people gathering and doing yoga and being might be too close together in a, mm-hmm. a yoga studio or what they might have typically envisioned for a yoga studio. This is outdoors and it's it looks spacious and there's a pool, I think, and there's all kinds of ways to get all the social distancing without too yeah. much uh, trouble. Yeah. So, and then what happens, because uh, it looks like it's as fun as the Yappy Yoga part itself looks like, it looks like there's quite a bit of fun that happens after the Yappy Yoga sessions. Definitely. So people hang out afterwards. There's a great coffee shop across the street so people grab coffees and hang out and just have you know banter and conversation and everyone's just really happy to be together but outside of that you know these are people that come to the studio regularly so Mm -hmm. um they have met each other before and then anyone that comes in that's new they meet a lot of new people and it's just really friendly and sweet yeah how many dogs and or humans are in a typical class typically get about 10, um, 10 humans mm-hmm. and between 7 and 10 dogs. I see. So not every uh, human is bringing a dog, obviously, I guess, by no, the math. Some people but, uh, yeah. come because they want to be around animals and sure. they love animals. Yeah. yeah. I gotcha. And also, mm-hmm. wasn't there something I thought I saw where among the things you talked about, about getting coffee or just hanging out after the class, isn't there some... T- opportunity sometimes to actually get in the pool for those humans and or dogs who are uh, inclined? Yes. So we had had past tense. We've removed the pool for the season. Ah, okay. Um, but in the summer, we bring back the puppy pool and okay. the puppies take a swim, especially when it's hot. Gotcha. And they love it. They yeah. get in there and they swim and we just have a fun time with them. But right now it's temporarily removed gotcha. during the winter. Okay, I yeah. gotcha. All right, Claudia, well, we're just sort of at the end of our time here, but maybe if you could just give us the website and or any kind of social media uh, places Absolutely. that people could find out more and see if they might want to consider a class or just find out more generally whether or not the Yappy Yoga thing works for them or not. Awesome. 
Okay, so Yappy Yoga is on our website. It's pineappleyogastudio.net mm-hmm. backslash happenings. Um, and you can also call me at 941-210-3739. And we're on Facebook and Instagram. It, well, you can just search for Pineapple Yoga Studio and we'll come up. Yeah, that's the key phrase. Yeah, so cool. All right, well, thanks so much for uh, joining us. And uh, and again, as we hopefully established, but just as a reminder, Yap Yoga only happens once a month, and it does happen to be uh, taking place this coming Sunday. So a great uh, way to enjoy the the long weekend and then have a little Yap Yoga with your dog. So that's great. Absolutely. Cool. Thanks so much, Claudia. Appreciate it. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving. Same to you. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. You're listening to Talking Animals coming up at 11 on WNF. It's Rob Lorai with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. Meanwhile, on this show at the moment, as the prize for Name That Animal Team, I'll be offering a Talking Animals t-shirt to the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song. It's Name That Animal Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WMNF. can name that animal tune. We'll take it off the air after the show because we have just about reached today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. I invite you to join me next Wednesday when my guest will be Nordy Cohen who conceived and spearheaded Rock and Roll Over, a collection featuring Nashville musicians who wrote songs about not just their dogs but their breeds of dogs. And to access the album you're asked to donate to the animal shelter of your choice wherever you live. So lots of pluses here. We'll hear more about the project and a song or to you from the uh, collection when we chat with Nordy Cohen next Wednesday, December 2nd on Talking Animals. I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. Apple Podcasts are available there too as well as on other podcast platforms plus links to our social media Facebook page or Instagram page or Twitter feed and more. And uh, you can also subscribe to our newsletter there to find out about our guests a couple of days beforehand and all other scintillating news from the Talking Animals world. That's all found at TalkingAnimals.net. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. This is Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wiki Watch, and beyond. Happy Thanksgiving and or thanks vegan to you and yours.